What's up, family? It's your boy, Daniel James, and I'm your host right here on Black Voices on the Hill. Black Voices on the Hill is a podcast and radio show for the culture. We center Black lives, amplify Black stories, and enhance the Black experience at Cornell University, Greater Ithaca, and beyond. Black Voices on the Hill podcast topics range from racism, police brutality, to colorism, sexism, to Greek life, leadership, and white elitism in the Ivy League. Black Voice on the Hill envisions a Cornell that's sensitive to the plight of its Black students, aware of the Black excellence in its college town, and unashamed about them changing the world. We see Black excellence at Cornell. We believe in Black empowerment. We love the Black experience. Black Coast Voices on the Hill is brought to you by WBBR News. To see one more new and upcoming episode for other Cornell Ithaca news, be sure to follow us on our Instagram at Black Voice on the Hill, Twitter, Facebook, or simply visit us on our website at www.com slash Black Voices. Listen, y'all, I'm super excited to have and, and really honored to have in the studio today. Um, listen, when any, anybody who's verified uh, on Instagram, uh, yeah, that's that's a hard one to, to get in touch with. But I'm so glad that he, he was willing to interview him. And um, he is known for being the youngest member to sit on the Montgomery County School Board of Education, not Montgomery, Alabama, y'all. Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, and today we have in the studio Mr. What's up, Nate? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Of course, Nate. Listen, um, just tell the people what school you're in, what college you're in, and what year and everything. That basic type of information. Sure. So I'm, right now, I'm currently a freshman in the ILR school. And back home, uh, recently, this past July, I got to serve on the Montgomery County School Board. And there, I've been able to put my experiences forward and help merge that with the degree that I'm getting here to figure out what I can do with the future. And it's just an experience. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So we're going to play um, a quick game. Okay, Nate. Now I've never um, done this on the show before. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to previous episodes, but I've always wanted to do it. It's called name that black voice. Okay. And essentially I'm either going to give you a quote by a black a leader. Uh, it can be pop culture. It's going to be, uh, it could be a celebrity, it could be anybody. Um, it's going to be someone you know, so it's likely going to be a celebrity. I'll either give you a quote or I will give you uh, a description worth like three hints, okay, about who that person is. Um, now, the three hints, you can get one hint at a time and you can keep going. You can say like, I want another hint, I want another hint, that type of thing, okay? Um, sound good? Sure. All right, the first quote is, when they go low, we go high. Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama. First Lady Obama. Love that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Mm-hmm. This next one. This young man in his 20s, in order to stay out of poverty, made a living a long time gambling, drug dealing, and robbery and racketeering. Ooh. I'll take a hint on this one. He went to prison. He converted to Islam and changed his name to Malik El-Shabazz. Malcolm X. Malcolm X, there we go. I knew that was gonna be a huge difference. And of course he became a prominent civil rights leader for the Black Freedom Struggle. The last one um, is a recent one. Excuse me, I'm speaking. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, listen, and, and quick shameless plug, y'all be sure to vote, register to vote, vote. Definitely. and. Um, don't mail anything in, apparently. Um, the best way to vote right now might be to go take it to your voter election uh, 
precinct or whatever that's near you or go in person if it's safe for you. Um, listen, so tell us, who is Nate Timbai? I know you kind of cover, you know, your school and everything, but where are you from and that type of thing? Who is Nate Timbai? I know he's this great young politician, basically. Um, he's a great leader when it comes to education, when it comes to prison reform, which we're going to talk about that. Um, but how'd you get to the Hill, man? What led you to the Hill? Sure. Yep, so both my parents are immigrants from Ethiopia, and I uh, have one older brother. And basically, I grew up in an area by which I was able to see both extreme poverty and extreme wealth. And these two, th this crazy confluence, you know, these two confluence of things uh, helped shape my experiences, made me recognize that uh, we are living in a system that prioritizes. Um, those who are in power, those who are on the higher end of our uh, income scales, those who uh, are not of color, we live in a system by which we marginalize and oppress you know, people because of their sexual orientation, their race, religious beliefs. And basically with the experiences that I have where uh, my household, prioritized education because there was a lack of it back home and in an environment by which I really get to see poverty just as I mentioned earlier where you have to use your dollars a specific way made me recognize that one the you know a vast amount of America lives in you know one the situation that I had to live through and two lives a completely different life than the wealthy 1% or, you know, the folks who uh, don't experience systematic oppression on a daily basis. And so back home, I used to get to see these things day to day. And I was fortunate enough to be in an environment by which people made me recognize that my community and I deserve better. Uh, and this is where I got to see improvements once folks started stepping up to the plate to advocate for what's coming around us and uh, in my area because i was able to see so much diversity so much uh, racial and socioeconomic diversity uh, so much uh, emphasis on you know making sure that we uplift african-american voices that we help out uh, our children who are in extreme poverty uh, i was able to recognize that you know now's the time to uh, step up to the plate and simply share my experiences. I know that we live in a moment where uh, young people's voices are valued. And I got to actually recognize this way before most of our big youth marches that we're experiencing uh, in this 21st century. And so uh, with the experience that I had both, both in my household uh, and one that I saw in my community and in my school, I was able to essentially piece together this one big picture that made me recognize that somebody in this area, somebody who looks like us, somebody who uh, has experienced the same experiences that we go through, uh, has to step up and essentially uplift the voices in this area because we are powerful, right? Black men, black women, uh, black people, people of color. Uh, but one thing that happens to prohibit us from being civically engaged is, you know, facing the oppression that we do by our governmental system, and that means that. You know, folks are picking up two to three jobs, uh, aren't able to go to their, you know, parent-teacher conferences because they have to pick up an extra shift to help pay a bill. 
I mean, situations like this by which, you know, a, a lot of folks who are experiencing uh, this form of oppression by both our societal and economic leaders um, are essentially unable to participate and help change their own situation because they have to help maintain their own situation. It, it's this, it's this crazy sequence of circumstances by which, uh, you know, one has to help out, you know, themselves before they get to help out others. And, you know, we often make it so hard for them to help out themselves. And that's when folks talk about, you know, minimum wages. That's when they talk about benefits. That's when they talk about work situations, you know, childcare. I mean, that's these all these situations that essentially piece together and we have to come together and figure out how we could solve these deep systemic issues that are affecting a lot of you know people of color and people who are impoverished across this country man you said so much there i heard the importance of black people and their voice um i heard systemic injustice i heard class stratification I heard um, really inequality of educational opportunity too, even through that, or threads of that as well in what you said. Um, I really wanna piggyback on, on that point you made about uh, black student voice or student voice in general. And it's so amazing that you can look at a county that allowed for a student to run for an elected office and actually valued that student's opinion when it came to um, advocating for education and that type of thing. I, because there are so many systems in place. I was having a conversation with a student the other day, also black, um, also had immigrant parents, and we were having a conversation about there is an expectation of black parents to not be present because there are a lot of um, black parents who are low income and they care about their child's education, but they also have to make sure that their children are fed as well. And so the system is set up to sort of, uh, to, act, to really ostracize black parents from the process, whether it's PTA meetings or, you know, parent and teacher tea, yep. whatever it is. And these sorts of systems are not just sort of, they sound very cute and nice, but they're actually white oppressive <laughs> structures. Put in place, mm -hmm. and I, I can say from my own experience, if it had not been for a mother who, you know, had the, the really, it is a privilege to be able to ask time off of work to go up to your child's school during, you know, their recess or their lunch break or your lunch break, and to be able to advocate for your child when you know they need a recommendation. Hey, I need you to speed that. that that's a privilege that a lot of parents don't have. Speaking of that, I, I want you to talk about. I had Mayor Savante Myrick, I don't know you, but y'all need to link up. Mayor Savante Myrick is, of course, Mayor of Ithaca, black man, awesome man. And For sure. Was, absolutely. And he was on city council when he was like 20. So he was like my age. Now, 20s, early 20s when he became mayor, like that's young. But like you were 17 when you were elected and you were able to garner over like 50,000 votes in your county. I want to ask, how did this list, I mean, you're not even eligible to like vote, right? And at 17, but you some, you were able to campaign, um, you were, how did you campaign? <laughs> what was your most effective campaign strategy? What was your platform you were running on? 
And what ultimately, what did you, what did your mom say? That's what I want to know. What did your parents say when you started <laughs> running for this office on? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, so I'll, you know, I'll break down that whole system, but I first wanted to say, you know, when you're talking about that one valued voice and, you know, that one person's life, I mean, that's, that's often, you know, I, I often recognize that a lot of people's situations are, are rough to the point where they, you know, they're not even able to, to, to tuck their children away at night. And that's why you know, I had this one conversation with this one person who's, who's considering going into education um, and becoming a teacher, but was, you know, so, so, you know, just not, not, not excited to pursue this or just not motivated enough because of pay, because of, you know, incentives, how, you know, the, the impact that they can have um, in changing the way that their classroom environment is. And this is why, you know, I've, you know, at least over the past few years, I've recognized the importance of having teachers, teachers of color, paying teachers properly, giving them flexibility to, you know, run the, run the classroom as they, you know, see fit. I mean, so many things that just go into this situation, but going into the process of uh, what went on back home. So actually, you know, when I, uh, ideally enough, when I happen to serve, I also uh, happen to, you know, it's like, I was able to vote, you know, by 18, right? Cool. So it's like, I, I, yeah, so I ended up turning 18, being able to vote, you know, and I'm voting in this election, so I got to serve this past year. Um, so basically, oh, and I, you know, I also just wanted to throw in, like, I was able to vote in the pre, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the midterm election when I, <laughs> and that's how fed up I am with school, I said prelim. <laughs> um, but definitely with the midterm election, um, and so basically what the process is back home, and one thing that's great about our county is that you know, they, they really do try to uplift all voices that are involved in every situation. And so the state legislature, along with a few other districts in my state, um, basically approved this structure where we have a full voting student school board member that is elected by all secondary students uh, and represents all K through 12 or not, you know, all, all public school students um, in our county. And so there are 166,000 students and there are around 90,000 secondary students. And so there's this process by which, um, however, you know, it's, it's sort of, mir it, it mirrors a presidential election or, you know, other, like a gubernatorial election where uh, there could be however many candidates. So it could be 30, 40, 50 candidates if so pleases. And then there's a convention around a month and a half after the filing date by which delegates from each school get to go out and narrow down the candidates to two candidates. And then for the next three months after that, that is where the two candidates go out to all 66 schools and campaign to all 90,000 kids and essentially try giving this platform by which, you know, they're not talking to these kids or extracting their experiences and stories helping, you know, making that better reflect their platform, uh, you know, just for empty language that, you know, doesn't have an impact on their day-to-day -day -day lives. But what's so great about this seat is that, you know, if a student says that they want to see funding here, all you need is four other votes at the board table to get that done. So everything and anything that is, you know, that a school board can do, um, you know, in the purview of you know, the superintendent of schools, anything that, you know, if you want to build a new school, uh, remodel these sorts of things, 
what is so great is that we put the power in the students' voices with you know, at least this one seat by which um, if a student says that uh, these water fountains, for example, um, don't feel safe enough or they are just not good enough or people don't use them, then there is the situation by which that you know, their representative, as with every you know, other legislature, um, would be able to make that change in real terms. And so when I ran, I ran because I simply saw the socioeconomic inequality amongst our schools. I saw kids that were, or I, I saw a system that had vast amount or vast differences simply based on the zip code of their school. And this was the problem because we are one county and we are essentially saying that if you live here, you get the better education. And that's what I got to saw, see during the campaign process. I got to hear teachers plead and tell their stories about how their classrooms don't have enough supplies or materials. Um, students who've said that, you know, simply this infrastructure is so bad uh, that have said that these classes are not engaging, that have said that, you know, there are a lot of folks who aren't sympathetic of their situations in the school building. I mean, there are these deep, deep systematic problems um, that so many kids still went through today. And when I ran, I ran on the platform that the zip code of your school shouldn't determine the quality of your education. And that was where I based um, a bunch of policies, you know, on gender equality, on how you can better the classroom, uh, to technology, to even the, the lunch and nutrition that students get based on that one philosophy, because at the end of the day, I kept seeing this reoccurring theme by which if you lived in one zip code, you received this type of education. And that was the whole problem with what was going on. And I figured that there should be someone who can sit at that table and say that they've experienced those experiences that can say that they hear those voices, not because they see them in a DM or hear them you know, online or in a way, but they, they hear it face to face with folks telling them what's going on. And so when I got to the board, thankfully I was able, or luckily I was able to be um, the first African-American uh, student school board member in 14 years. And this is where I was able to get so much engagement because when I'm talking to this, you know, all these students, and this insanely diverse district, uh, I'm talking to them because I am them, right? I'm talking to them from the perspective of, I do go to school and I do experience these same experiences that you do. And so uh, it, it was quite the long process, definitely you know, more details. I have you know, mentors who I've found along the way, folks who have helped motivate me. Uh, I mean, there's so much that went into it, but at the root of all of this, I was able to get an experience like no other, and I was able to help push the voices um, of African Americans, of you know, again, folks who uh, have different sexual orientations, folks who are impoverished, folks who are special education, folks who don't speak another language or who don't speak English. I mean, I, I was able to essentially relate to everyone uh, or relate to most of these kids and say that when I get to this seat, it won't be empty language uh, that we've talked about. It'll be an ongoing conversation by which I'll make sure that everything that I do will you know, reflect the experiences that you have and the vision that you hope to see. Whew. Man, 
again, a mouthful. Listen, I think that if I don't want anyone to take from this conversation anything else, I want them to take that voting in local elections, city, state is super important. That yeah. the only race for those that are like political aspirants, the only race is not presidential. It's not gubernatorial either. Uh, running for can yeah yeah and you know if i could just quickly interrupt i mean i just wanted to say that at least at the age that i saw it the the most important people are your local people i mean you see headlines about, about how folks you know about how these big time politicians cut down you know by a billion or you know a few hundred million but the the most important place where numbers get cut down is at the local level right it's the the superintendent who gets to decide how much thousand dollars goes into you know this classroom at this school it's the county executive that gets to or the the mayor that gets to decide you know which roads or you know who is in charge of paving which roads and when it's the city council that gets to decide how much your property taxes are or whether they get to tax you know certain goods i mean it, the the change happens at the very most local levels and at least in my county i was able to be a part of that change I mean, here's the thing growing up in the public school system and going to for middle school and my first year in high school i was at a predominantly black school and i remember um of course i was in ib ib was a predominantly white and asian program brought into these black schools to hopefully build the quote-unquote academic you know performance of these schools um, granted, all the kids in the schools that were done mm -hmm. like needed was resources, and they could have been performing at the same level. And I think it's interesting. We'll have these special student lounges for non BIPOC folks, you know, in the school while the roof is caving in in the gym. You know, um, I had a situation like that in my in my hometown. So it's just it's refreshing to hear someone address that. Okay, so. Nay, you talked about that your election was very similar to a presidential election. So let's 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 talk about that. Okay, so now in a in a in a uh, in a future world, let's just say if Nate, if you became president tomorrow, okay, I want you to tell me what are your top three like policy areas that you would seek to address. I know you've done work with education. I guess I can help you one education, but you can tell me specifically, and then. I know you've done work advocating for um, gun violence legislation. So um, at least you've marched for it. So tell me, what, what will your three top priorities be? Yeah, at least as of October 28th, 2020, uh, would, would, would definitely be one ending mass incarceration, right? I view right now um, the, the prison system to essentially be an extension or a leg of slavery. And that's where, I mean, I, I got to hear once again, this one quote where we, as you know, America has 5% of the US population and I believe 25% of the world's, you know, prison population. And I mean, th that's our problem because we also um, choose to ignore the fact that most of those people are people of color who've been disenfranchised from voting who once they step out, have their records tarnished, aren't able to you know, get jobs in certain areas. And a lot of these offenses aren't even 
physical offenses. It's mostly stuff where, you know, it could be a drug offense, offense or, uh, I mean, anything like that, right? And I think this is one thing where we got to, where I at least got to work on this back in the schools, but we have to, to result towards restorative practices, helping heal the mind instead of throwing someone in a cage. I mean, that's, that's simple human practice, but instead we're continuing the system by which we're spending so much money um, just to incarcerate a bunch of black folks, bunch of people of color, people who uh, aren't making a high income. I mean, I, I, that would be the one big issue right now. And then everything that follows up would be yeah, healthcare, education, would be affordable housing, or just housing in general, would be, um, would be, a, you know, racial equality and pay, right? I mean, there's just, there's so much going on, but those would be, you know, the four big things. Mm-hmm. Y'all, he just named like five areas. He can't stick to three. That's how you know he's passionate right there, Nate. Um, <laughs> listen, Appreciate one it. thing I heard you say, though, is essentially like a lot of people are being in prison simply for being poor. And that's, that's a big problem. And I think that um, like in Ithaca and Tompkins County is one thing that I have. And in upstate New York, one thing that's been really encouraging, especially with this past summer has been seeing, you know, the end of money bail or at least legislation that attempts to end money bail and all those types of things. Um, be aware of all those policy issues too that Nate just talked about are things that um, you can call into your local representatives about. If you want to see these things change, you can get these bills passed. You can, you know, say how you want parts of the bill, you know, written if you have that type of influence too. So I think these are all like, a problem. they're not sort of distant. Oh, I wish, no, like Nate could do that. Like right now, like we could, we can all be a part of this process of making our country better. I have, okay, so this is a funny thing. So, uh, Bessie DeVos, of course, our, our Secretary of Education, and um, she's been an advocate of school choice, which we know in effect hurts public school education um, through you know funding and all that type of thing. Um, and she's increased her critiques of public schooling even more during COVID, saying, you know, school choice is coming, whether you like it or not. So there's this picture though I saw on Twitter, right, of you. Bessie DeVos, okay, and uh, in the picture, like, you know, Bessie, she's smiling with all 46 of her teeth, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and it's like, be serious, he's like, I didn't come to play today. So, and you said... I didn't. <laughs> you didn't come to play, that's fine. And you say, only one of us believes in public school education. Nate, what did you mean by that? And, and I guess um, I kind of know, know what you mean, but what's, what's your critique of Bessie DeVos? And given that you were on the Montgomery Board of Education, what, what, what's been your sort of feeling of her and managing during COVID, that type of thing? I mean, you, you said you simplified it at the beginning. You know, it's what I said wasn't even an opinion. It was simply a factual statement. I mean, there was one of us in that situation and that situation was me because she has proven time and time again to, you know, reverse um, a bunch of, you know, policies that would help out trans kids, um, would cut public school funding uh, or be complacent to those type of actions, um, would instead, you know, advocate for um, 
as you as you mentioned, school choice uh, wouldn't be a strong wouldn't be a proponent of desegregation or integration. I mean, th there were things that she did that specifically put a, you know a, a certain group of kids up in our education system, and I was there to simply say that we have to recognize the contrast. She isn't the uh, the people's person or someone who's going to help save you know a lot of the problems that a lot of the teachers are facing right now either in my district or across the state or across the country and i was simply saying what all of us were thinking she doesn't believe in public school education um she chooses to back her actions with that philosophy that you know she um instead values the the people whose pockets shine brighter and uh, every policy that she has pushed out has simply proved to go back on the progress that we've made in terms of racial equality in the classroom, um, removing implicit bias, uh, helping out teachers. I mean, it was clear she just wasn't the person or isn't the person who needs to be in that job. And one of, you know, not necessarily my direct, direct neighbor, but who lives, you know, neighborhood over was, uh, John King, who was the Secretary of Education before Betsy DeVos. And I, you know, after conversation after conversation, I see a complete contrast on who's an educator. And, but I was just saying that I just clearly saw a contrast between who's an educator and who isn't. Yeah, it's a, uh... And I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that with this new administration, because I'm just, um, I'm believing, and I don't even know, what have you seen in terms of candidates? Because I haven't heard a lot of talk about education, even in um, presidential or vice presidential um, platforms. I have two questions. One of them is that, what have you, does it concern you that, I guess they've talked about COVID education, COVID education during COVID, but what do you think are the long-term sort of implications of education when it comes to this COVID-19 crisis, I guess? Oh my God, insane, right? I, I served at, you know, at this high portion of, you know, this functioning district has so much money, so many moving parts, you know, 24,000 workers. And I saw and I, I was a part of, you know, the, the transition plan of a massive health pandemic and in a densely populated area where we have a million residents and how you have to change your education format in the matter of a few weeks to a month, how you have to collaborate with unions and teachers. And I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm here today, right? To, or I'm sorry, why I'm, you know, an ILR. And, um, the drawbacks to the situation that we have right now, I mean, if our leaders don't don't step it up or get their act together, you know, one, there's a loss of education, right? Where essentially, let's say with elementary schoolers who aren't in person and who have to engage through their devices, you know, aren't getting the hands-on experience that they need that's a fundamental portion to their developmental process of learning, right? They're not through the feedback, they're not with their friends playing around. I mean, these are all things that contribute to, you know, how a child develops and grows, right? And if we fail to miss the mark to make sure that uh, our kids who 
are uh, third grade and under, I mean, we, we just have to make sure that, for example, those kids read uh, are reading and math proficient by third grade, right? Because there's a, a statistic that correlates to um, low graduation rates, rates if they aren't. And it's like, we are having to learn how to change our resources and put them to use to help um, essentially those who need us the most and uh, those who are a part of the system right now. So I mean, drawbacks include, you know, in many districts, teachers aren't receiving pay. Um, you know, students aren't receiving the resources or the, the mental health resources that they need. Um, in the long run, students are going to be behind on educational proficiency in you know, certain fields. Um, we are going to miss the mark to help uh, teach a lot of our students a lot of, you know, the practices that you and I have learned throughout elementary school and middle school to the current demographic because, again, they're simply not in school. I mean, there are moving parts to this equation where we have to help every person in need. And if we choose to help a certain group of people over another, then we will immensely fail to, um, to help uplift um, the, the voices and folks who need us the most. I mean, you have to be someone who's willing to make sure that everything is running properly. Otherwise, a lot of things you know, maybe even nothing will run, you know, will run, nothing will run properly. So it's, I, I don't know if you see what I'm saying. It, it, really what I'm trying to get at is that drawbacks include uh, early de developmental learning, um, includes, you know, social events for um, a lot of middle and high schoolers that contribute to, you know, their, their, their mental health, you know, helping them out. Sometimes, you know, you need that break instead of sitting behind a laptop for many hours. I mean, it's also uh, an issue of funding where resources are diverted. This pandemic is only exposing what we've already known along, and that's that we live in a system that chooses to not help out um, our marginalized and oppressed. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm from rural South Carolina. I'm from Maine frankly, a rural black working class town. And I can tell you, and it's rural, it's very rural, just to reemphasize that. And uh, w when it comes to even, like you said, technological resources, I think that that's been a huge problem that we didn't realize. There are a lot of kids who are going home and simply not able to do assignments or even keep up with this increasing te technologization of our schools and of curriculum and class content now all being virtual is making it a lot less accessible for kids. There are tons of kids throughout South Carolina who are sitting in parking lots of Burger Kings and of churches and parking lots of McDonald's trying to get free access to Wi-Fi because Spectrum doesn't, you know, won't build towers in rural places. They won't, you know, uh, provide uh, free even, well, they they did it for a limited time, you know, provide um, Wi-Fi access, but again, they've monopolized it. So it's become even more expensive and all that type of thing. So that's very true. And I just, I think I felt a lot of the brunt of what you said. Um, and yeah, I, I don't mean to, to interrupt, but I quickly just wanted to say that, yeah, you know, I hope this situation makes us recognize that we need to reinvent learning without compromising people's health because this is the new normal. And 
I'm, I'm, you know, it, and it's, it, it's, it's, you know, this situation forces us to innovate and that can be seen as something that's not bad, especially in the moment when we need it. Very true. Let me, uh, use, I have two more questions for you and then I'm gonna let you go. Um, so the ILR school, how do you think they're doing in terms of educating you? Um, I, I can say when I first came to ILR, um, I, I still love it to this day in terms of, I love a school committed to the workforce, the workplace. Um, I've grown to love the idea of unionization. I've become very pro-union as the years have gone on. But as you know, the history of labor unions has been very white-centered. Um, and so is, you'll notice, I hope, I hope the deans don't get me, but even the education in our school sometimes can be white-centered, whether it's labor history, whatever. How do you think they're doing in terms of educating you and how are you going to carry that knowledge back to your community? Well, I mean, I, one thing that I try to just make sure that whatever atmosphere I'm in, I don't compromise my values or you know, certain skill sets or you know, ideologies that I believe in. Uh, I'm only a few, you know, a few weeks probably. I mean, uh, you know, a few months into this semester and this is my first semester. So far, everything uh, is fine. I, I understand that, you know, at least education is completely different now versus when you might've taken the classes that I'm taking. Um, and I mean, education, well, for example, I, I feel like I'm getting that a pretty decent balance because I'm in Africana studies. And so I'm able to, for my distribution requirement. You've been able to experience more balance by taking classes in Africana studies, et cetera, right? And I mean, simply, you know, learning more about other religions. Beginning of the semester, I was, you know, I, learning about a religion. So at the beginning of the semester, I was part of, you know, like an Islamic civilization history class, which I thought was fascinating, but I, did not think I was ready for it because it's a lot of work. Um, but it, it's stuff like that where I'm happy there, you know, you're able to balance out the classes you take when you take them and, and you know, what you want to take. You know, the, I, I, I've done that as well. In uh, my first semester, I took uh, Africa, the continent's people, um, and I've taken Black Radical mm -hmm. Traditions. And let me tell you, Dr. Lamumba is great, Dr. Russell Rickford. Yeah, I have that, yep. <laughs> Great, great you're, professor. Absolutely. And she's very accomplished too and just very knowledgeable too. Um, so last question, what does the future hold for Nate Timbite? Do you have anything coming up that we should know about or anything cool that you're doing? You running for another office, Nate? Right now, I am simply just focusing on academics, picking up you know, internships and service work. I'm you know, hoping to do a lot of prison reform work, educational advocacy, um, and so forth. Uh, and I, oddly enough, I don't plan on going into politics anytime soon, meaning like not in my 20s at all, or my 30s, just, I mean, I have to see what comes along day by day, but I, my experiences back home have made me recognize that, you know, there are a lot of other moving parts to, you know, society by which you can create social change. And that's where, you know, I think ILR steps in, where I'm not necessarily getting a business degree, but I'm figuring out the way that the world of work operates and how you can make that work um, and how you can make that system work for workers 
uh, and employees and work for customers instead of, you know, folks who are executives and administration and management. And I'm also learning this balance of, you know, how of, of labor economics of, you know, how administration and management interact with workers. And this is where unions come in. And essentially what I'm trying to figure out right now is how you can use, um, you know, the, the dollar bill or, you know, how you can use a workforce for, uh, not for, for social change, but how you can make it work for people instead of the other way around. And I feel like ILR is going to at least equip me with enough of the base knowledge to step into to any career after and figure out how, you know, that, that corporation, that nonprofit can use their t dollars towards good things, but also make sure that all their workers are, you know, treated beyond fair enough and how consumers aren't, you know, ripped off based off of where they live, the advertisements they get um, and so forth. So it's essentially figuring out how you could flip the operation of the economy to, to work for workers instead of administration and management and the folks who are at the top. Listen, y'all, this has been amazing today. Nate, I'm so sad it has the end, but thank you so much um, for coming on Black Voice on the Hill. Um, you, gave us some, you gave us some very valuable knowledge. I think the first person that I've talked about this intersection of education and, and the COVID crisis and racial injustice, all that. And um, I'm just so grateful because, um, you know, people like Nate, you don't find often, Nate is not a career politician. He's a person that was- Appreciate it. Yeah, he's a person that was, of course, and you deserve it, man. But he's a person that was purpose-driven and politics just happened to be the best way to sort of um, advocate for the rights of others. And I'm, I'm glad to have him here at <laughs> our school. Yeah. Yeah. You, you put that in the best way. Like I, I, you know, when people are like that, that political guy or the politician, like it's, it's the way that you exclaimed it or described it where, you know, it's, it's not, I definitely would, would hate to view myself as a politician, but more so someone who's just trying to help out the situation that we're in. Absolutely. So the average neighbor in summary. Oh yeah, absolutely. Listen, okay. Nate, tell us your um, social media handles, how people can keep contact with you, all that. Yep. It's at Nate Tinbite across all platforms. So that's N-A-T-E. T-I-N-B-I-T-E, one username, one word. Um, folks can reach out to me through social media and I'd be more than happy to respond back. Absolutely, and I'm sure Nate has um, fan pages too and all that type of thing as well. So, because um, he's <laughs> um Thank y'all for coming today. Um, I hope that you're more engaged now than ever. Please, if this airs before the election or after the election, please vote. Um, it's already passed. Well, vote next time um, and be engaged. And of course, like Nate said, um, continue to uh, engage in activism. Um, we have uh, a genocide going on in other parts of the world due to SARS and so many other countries. And uh, I just want us to be engaged and uh, let's be unapologetically black. Um, 
you know, for folks, when you know, when you mentioned civic engagement for folks who, you know, simply aren't able to contribute with either their dollars or in-person advocacy, uh, I wanted to, you know, I, I simply just want to exclaim the importance of even an email. I mean, I, at a system that was as big as ours was, those things, you know, and letters and phone calls made the biggest difference. So I hope people can get engaged in any and every way possible. Again, Nate Tim by y'all. To see when more new and upcoming episodes of Black Voice on the Hill or other Cornell and Good News, follow at Black Voice on the Hill on Instagram. Follow WBBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Visit us on our website at wbbr.com slash Black Voices. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. Y'all, tell Alexa, play Black Voices on the Hill. And you can tune in right here on WDBR 93.5 FM every Friday at 2 p.m. We'll see you next week. And the podcast releases, of course, on Tuesday. Shout out to my executive producers, Mike Sykes and Grace Fairchild. Peace out, y'all.